continuing in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, so open your Bible to Exodus 34. (laughs) It's an old joke and it works just about every time because we need to be familiar with what Paul is about to reference in chapter 3. He is about to talk about Moses and we need to know the event that he is talking about. Now last week, We wandered right into an area that I just love to preach about. I get all worked up about it because I think not enough Christian churches understand the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Most folk who own a Bible don't seem to understand how the Bible works. There are many promises and prophecies in the Old Testament that are still good, that we're still looking forward to. There are even covenants in the Old Testament, like the Abrahamic covenant, that continue to have ongoing effects in the life of Christians today. But the particular covenant that Paul is driving at here is the covenant that God made exclusively with Israel. He says it over and over again. This is a covenant between me and Israel. Israel, and that covenant was the covenant of law that was mediated through Moses at Mount Sinai, which law all of Israel was required to keep. And when I say required to keep, I mean do it or die. I mean God said, if you do it, I'll bless you, I'll take care of you, I'll bring you to the land of milk and honey, I'll drive out the wild animals, I'll keep you safe from your enemies, I'll give you rain in season, I'll take care of you completely if you do it. But he also knows that nobody can do it. And so as soon as he gave the law to Moses, he also included the statement, now when they don't do it, because he knew they weren't going to do it. It's not only Ten Commandments written in stone. 
but it's 613 separate ordinances that all constituted the Moses law. And so, because nobody can do it, and because it includes a curse, that is God not only saying, I won't defend you from your enemies, and I won't defend you from the wild animals that will infiltrate your land and harm your your livestock and harm your children. I'm not only not going to protect you from them, I'm going to hold back the rain. And I'm going to see that you starve, and I'm going to bring your enemies down on you. I'm going to drive you out of your land. I'm going to make you sick. I'm going to bring pestilences on you. You're going to fall under a curse if you don't do my law. As a consequence, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul refers to that law as the ministry of death. I said it a few times last week that way because I'm trying to drive it into your memory. The ministry of death. And again, I don't think that most Christian churches understand that the law has not changed. It is still the ministry of death and that when preachers start preaching from the law and imposing that on the conscience of blood-bought, fully redeemed Christians... They are taking people away from the sufficient grace of Christ and driving them to the ministry of death. And that makes no sense to me. I don't know why you would willingly drive people toward the ministry of death. And it can only be because they just don't know any better. They're just not paying enough attention to what the Bible plainly says. Now, Paul is going to not only refer to the ministry of death and call it the letter, the letter of the law written in stone, he's going to say that it faded away, that it's gone, completely gone because it was eclipsed by the surpassing glory of the new covenant. And if you are a new covenant blood-bought believer, then you have nothing to do with the law. Nothing to do with the law. I'll say it again. Nothing to do with the law. You have nothing to do with the law. And yet there are people who will impose the law on you freely. Last week we gave some examples like tithing. I think that's a primary example because tithing is still taught in so many Christian churches. But you do not find tithing as a rule, as a law, as a standard anywhere in the New Testament. It doesn't exist. It's not part of the New Covenant. It was an Old Testament, Old Covenant tax that was placed on Israel for the support of the Levites and the fatherless and the widows. And they would bring their grains and their tents into the storehouses in Israel in order to provide for the Levites, the fatherless, and the widows. The church, get this right, the church is not the storehouse. You don't bring your tithes to the storehouse of the church because we're not raising money for the Levites. Does that seem obvious enough? We're not supporting the Levites. We don't have a Levitical tribe of priests We don't have a high priest other than Christ. We don't have a temple service. We are not sacrificing animals. We are not involved in old covenant religious worship. And part and parcel of old covenant religious worship was the tithe. 
but how many of you have ever had tithing imposed on you in any church environment ever? Right away, they start saying, you got to pay the tenth, which really, the tithe in the Old Testament, if you pay attention to it, was a tenth, and then a tenth of the 90 that was left, and then another tenth of the, what was that, 81% that was left? I don't know. So really, it's close to 30% of your income is the mandatory tithe. So if you used to do 10% and thought you were tithing, you were breaking the law. James says missing it in any one point makes you guilty of the whole law. So by tithing 10%, you have broken the ministry of death. Have I said that enough times? The new covenant says every man, as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. Now that is the opposite of tithing. Tithing was mandatory. Do it or die. But let every man give according as he purposes in his heart. That is grace giving. That is spirit filled giving. That is you giving according to what you and God have determined is appropriate for you. Now we have for 15 and a half years, and I like to brag about this. Excuse me if I boast for a moment. But for 15 and a half years, I've been saying this. For 15 and a half years, I have never preached a you got to give message. Can anybody say I ever have? Never have. Never have. And we've never had a financial need. Because the people of God, inspired by the Spirit of God, will just simply take care of the work and the ministry of God. And it's a remarkable thing. I don't understand how it works. I just know it does. And it makes me very, very happy to give people the freedom that I can say to them, just give whatever works for you. We don't even pass a plate here. I've had visitors come up to me after a service before and say, you forgot to take the offering. Like I would forget that. We have a box on the wall. People give whenever they feel like it, whatever they feel like. I have never done an internet message. Carla, you're on the internet all the time. Have you found one internet message where I've said, all you internet people, you got to give to GCA. You got to support GCA or we're going off in your town. That's the way it used to get done all the time on radio. Yeah, boy. If you want us in your town, you got to keep giving. Send your tithes and offerings directly to us. Never. We've never done that. And yet month to month consistently, the Internet giving exceeds the local giving. And I've never told them to give. But the word of God is sufficient that they feel there's value in what they're hearing here, in what they're learning here. And because money is the way that we exchange value, the same way that if you like a pair of shoes, you got to give some money for those shoes. If you find a shirt you like, like a really green shirt, then you're going to pay some money for the really green shirt because there's value in that. And if you find value in what we do here at GCA... You will support it. So my point is, here at GCA, we are so convinced of new covenant freedom that we are committed to it, and that has supported us all these years. But there are churches you can find right up the street. Just walk up the street, 
and you'll hear somebody saying, you got to give 10%. And by you only giving 10%, you're still not fulfilling the law and you're still pointing people back to Moses and you're still bringing a curse down on them. The ministry of death. So we mentioned other examples last week, but I think tithing is a perfectly good example of what I'm talking about, how easily the church will intermingle, will mix and match old covenant principles and drag them into the new covenant. But the Bible never does that. No New Testament author ever does that. And we won't do that here at GCA because basic principle. I firmly believe that the spirit of the all-powerful God is more powerful than you or me. And as a consequence, I can leave you in his powerful hands and he will convert you and change you and drive you to do the things that please him. But if I stand here and yell at you to do things, you know what you're like. You're rebellious. I asked you a minute ago if you wanted to say hi to each other and you went, no, we don't even like each other. (laughs) You know what you're like. Admit it. If every week you came in here and I said, we need more money. Because Tom and I got together with Alex and we created a budget. Now it's up to you to meet the budget that we just manufactured. And so you got to give us money every week. You got to give us money. That would take about three, four weeks before I was the only person at GCA. (laughs) Because you'd get sick of it. You'd get sick of me browbeating you over finances so we don't do any of that but there are certainly plenty of churches that do so as we continue through chapter 3 of 2nd Corinthians Paul talks about not only the ministry of death but how the letter of the law is insufficient and he says this in so many ways in so many places like in Galatians that it is insufficient to secure you with God eternally that can only happen through Jesus Christ and faith in Christ and that by having faith in Christ who did fulfill the old covenant in that way you end up with Christ's righteousness imputed to your account now if you have Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to your account so that when you stand before God he doesn't see any of your sin or your shortfalling or your trespasses what he sees is the perfection of his son imputed to you what do you have to add to that nothing that is fully sufficient to save you and that is the new covenant Pauline theology of how people get saved And yet there are folk, I know I'm ranting and raving now, but yet there are folk who will say to you, Christ is all and Christ is is Savior and Christ is your Lord and you gotta, and then they'll start telling you what you gotta do. And it can be as arbitrary as men have to wear ties or women have to wear dresses or it can be something silly like don't play cards or don't go to movies. You're nodding at me because you've heard these rules before. Where do those rules come from? Don't smoke. Now, I think smoking's a dumb idea, but there's nothing in the Bible about not going to movies or not dancing. Oh, that's a big popular one. Don't dance. 
It doesn't say that in the Bible. In fact, it says David danced before the Lord. So I, I don't see where dancing is prohibited in the Bible. But various different church groups and denominations love to make up rules because they honestly seem to believe that the Spirit of God is not sufficient governor on your behavior, so they have to impose their own rules on your behavior to make you somehow more like them. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible gives you the freedom to follow Christ, to have faith in Christ, and the New Testament does say if you determine that something is sin for you and then you do it, you're guilty of that sin because you knew it was sin when you did it. If you're convinced that you should not play cards, let's say Nick back here decides he should not play cards, then I agree he should never play cards. The problem comes when he tells Leon don't play cards. Now we've wandered into genuine legalism. Everybody should keep their own individual commitments. But when you start imposing your non-biblical commitments on other people, you have now wandered beyond what the Bible allows. And yet I've grown up in the church of do, do, do this stuff. Do all these things. Here are our rules. Here are our regulations. Do it, do it, do it. Boom, 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 boom. Just do the stuff. And year after year after year, I thought I was somehow pleasing God because I fooled everybody into believing I could do the stuff. And as soon as I got away from the people in the church, I didn't do any of the stuff. But when I was around them, I was mighty holy. Because that's what happens when you impose law on people. Okay, that, that's the introduction. We better start reading. I'm in Exodus 34. And the reason I ranted and raved is because I really believe that far too much of the professing Christian world does not understand the damage they're doing by driving people to the old covenant that they were never a part of to begin with. If you're a Gentile believer, you had no part in the law to begin with. You weren't there. And yet there are people telling you to go get yourself into that law. That's crazy talk. But people accept it because, well, the guy in the pulpit said it. Chapter 34, starting at verse 29, Moses has just had to replace the two tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them because the first version of the Ten Commandments were cut out with the finger of God and then written by the finger of God and then given to Moses. Moses came down off Mount Sinai and he found the people celebrating around a calf that they had made that even Aaron couldn't quite explain. I don't know, we just... We threw some gold in the fire, and lo, out came this calf. Who'd have believed it? So Moses, in his anger, showing that Moses was a real flesh and blood guy who sometimes his anger got the best of him, and I really like that about Moses. Moses ended up throwing the Ten Commandments down, and they broke. And then he had to go back up on Sinai and say, you know those stones you gave me? Okay, I might have broke those. And so God tells him to cut out two tablets of stone, and then God writes them again, the Ten Commandments. 
Now, as I mentioned last week, and I'm going to keep driving this into your memories, the Ten Commandments are called the covenant. That's synonymous wording for the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the basis on which God formed a covenant with Israel. And he says it over and over. And they were written on stones that are called the tables of the covenant. And they were put in a box called the Ark of the Covenant. I think after all that, we should get it straight that that was a covenant God was forming with Israel. But not with us. George, you're no part of that covenant. God didn't say that you have to follow what's on Mount Sinai or else he'll curse you. Right? Because Christ took away the curse. And to take away the curse, he had to take away the law. And that's what Paul's about to say. The law has dissipated completely because of the surpassing glory of the new covenant. So starting in chapter 34, verse 29, Moses has renewed the covenant. Boy, I I have to say this. Go back to verse 10. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which have not been ever produced in the earth, nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom I live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. So he keeps referring to these commandments as a covenant. Verse 11, be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Starting at verse 20, as Moses comes down out of the mountain, it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony. Do all your translations say that? The Ten Commandments made up the testimony of the covenant that God made with Israel. They do not say universally to all the church. Exodus 34, 29. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands as he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses... Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak to him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, so Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak again with God. Now, the next part of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, you can turn there now, 
is Paul's commentary on the fact that Moses' face shone, but also the veil. Why would Moses, with his face shining after he had spoken to God, why would Moses veil his face? Was it in order to keep the Israelites from being afraid? Well, no, because eventually his face stopped shining. And so Paul concludes that the reason that the veil was over Moses' face was so that the Israelites wouldn't see the fading glory of that first covenant. Here's what he says. We're going to start at chapter 3, verse 1. So are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter or an epistle of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. And as soon as Paul uses the phrase, tablets written in stone, any thoroughgoing Jew who knew his Old Testament hearkened immediately back to Mount Sinai, and they were aware that God's communication was through tablets of stone. As I think I mentioned last week, historically, that is the first writing of God that we have anywhere in human history. That's the first time that God himself wrote something. He didn't work through a mediary. He didn't work through a human being or a prophet. God himself wrote down Ten Commandments, and God himself called those Ten Commandments the testimony of the covenant that he was making with Israel. So God understood exactly what the purpose was for the Ten Commandments. The purpose of the Ten Commandments was to form a covenant with Israel. No similar covenant has been made with the church because Paul just contrasted words that were written on tables of stone. He contrasted it with God writing not with ink and not on stone, but written in our hearts by the spirit of the living God. So in the old covenant, God wrote on tables of stone. Those tables of stone were always external to you. And you had to try to live up to those tables of stone. I've said this a million times, but I'm going to say it again for emphasis. The tables of stone can't bend down to help you. The tables of stone can only stand there and say, you're wrong. That's all they can do. But the spirit of the living God living within you can write what God expects of you, what God requires of you, God's relationship with you. He writes that on your heart internally. No longer is it external from you and you have to live up to it. It is part of you. It guides you. It takes you through your life and it governs your behavior. It changes the way you think. How many of you would be willing to admit that you're different now than you used to be? That better be every hand in the place. Jennifer, you should raise Jeff's hand. <clears throat> We're different than we used to be. Why? 
It's not because we decided of our own human flesh and conscience and will that one day we got up and said, you know, that sinning thing just doesn't seem like a good idea. I think I'll do better from now on. We like our sin. We love our sin. Paul admits it. There's pleasure in sin. And we would continue to imbibe our sin as fast as we could. We would just do everything our evil hearts desired if it were not for God interrupting our lives, writing his expectations, his love, his grace and mercy on our hearts internally, and that changes our behavior. In other words, it accomplishes what the law couldn't. The law couldn't save anybody The new covenant saves everybody it intends to save. So the new covenant is powerful because it is God indwelling his people. The old covenant is powerless because it was always external to people. You see the difference? So Paul contrasts. It is manifested that you are a letter of Christ. Christ is writing on you. And writing in you, cared for by us, sure there's ministers that care for the church, but we the church are an epistle from Christ written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tables of the human heart. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. He says, I'm confident that that's what God is doing for you and to you. I am confident that God is saving you and converting you and changing you and drawing you. And he has all the power to do those things. Verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. There's nothing within you. There's nothing in your human fleshly body that's adequate to please God. Think about it for just a moment. There's righteous, holy God, who we can't even conceive of, who is living in a place that no man approaches, encasing himself in light, angels around his head crying out about his holiness, the maker of heaven and earth, the all-omnipotent, all-powerful master of time, space, and reality. And then there's you. Are you going to be able to charge into his presence and talk about how good you are? There's no way. Because he's also omniscient. And you can't lie to him. And if you were going to talk about how good you are, you'd have to lie. And he would know the lie. And he would judge you for your shortcomings and your lack of holiness and your lack of separateness and your lack of ability to be genuinely good. So what does Paul say? There's nothing in us that is adequate. But our adequacy comes from God. Our sufficiency comes from God. The only reason we will stand before God Almighty and not fry is because God, by his grace, by his mercy, has made us sufficient and adequate and has placed the righteousness of Christ on our account. Our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants, as ministers, diakonos is the word, made us servants of the new 
covenant. And by contrast, not ministers or servants of the letter. But we are servants or ministers of the spirit. For the letter, he's referring to the letter of the law. I showed you that last week. For the letter kills. I just don't know why people don't read that. The law kills. Somebody look up Deuteronomy 27, 26. Tom, look that up for a minute. Deuteronomy 27, 26. It's written right in the law. It's in the Deuteronomical law that this law condemns, kills. You got it? Yes. Stand up and read it for everybody, nice and loud. Cursed be anyone who does not conform the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Okay, so all the people had no choice. God did not bring his law down and say, here's my law, what do you think? Here's my law, do you feel like doing it? He said, here's my law, he imposed it on Israel, and cursed is everybody who doesn't perform it perfectly, constantly, continually, from birth to death. Cursed. You know, the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, is the book of Malachi. And you know what the last word of the last book of the Old Testament is? Curse. Curse. The Old Testament ends with a curse. And that's why it's so important that you have a mediator that Christ came and took away not only the thing that curses people, but he took the curse itself. When he died on the cross, he took the curse so that we, according to Paul, are never going to encounter the wrath of God. He took the wrath for us. That's why this whole Christian thing is so important. That's why that whole Jesus thing is so valuable. Because you are either going to be cursed or he took your penalty for you. And because he is a perfect savior, he saved you perfectly and thereby you don't ever have to be under a curse or under the wrath of God. That is such good news. That's the very essence of what the gospel is. So, he has made us adequate as ministers of the new covenant, not ministers of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But, if the ministry of death, I have to keep saying that as loud as I can. Because that is synonymous with the law of Moses. If the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory. Look at the next line. So that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses. Okay, that's what we just read. That the Israelites could not look intently on Moses' face because Moses put a veil over it. Now Paul is going to tell you why Moses put a veil over his face because of the glory of his face fading as it was. Okay, so the glory that was on the face of Moses was slowly fading away. And Paul sees in that that there was glory to the old covenant, but it was a fading glory. And if the old covenant which is the ministry of death, 
if the old covenant had glory, how much more glory does the ministry of life have? How much more glory of the new covenant? And because the new covenant has the surpassing glory, the old covenant, the law, is fading away. You get it? Okay. If the ministry of death, pretty soon you're all going to get to say it with me. Let's all say it together. Preach. <laughs> Let's read verse 7, the first couple words together. But if the ministry of death, that's the law of Moses. Just get it right in your head. It's the ministry of death. If it, in letters engraved on stone, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory, even more glorious? For, verse 9 for if the ministry of condemnation, okay, so now we have another synonymous term. As if the ministry of death was not enough, the ministry of condemnation. In other words, if you're trying to follow the law to establish your own righteousness, you will end up nothing but condemned. Is that obvious enough? So I have to ask the question again. It's just the preacher in me. Why would anybody drive you back to that law? You all know it happens. You can turn on the radio or TV or internet any day, and you can watch it happen. Drives me crazy. I watch TV, and I see these people just instantly go to legalism. That creeping legalism, it just can't be all grace, all grace, all grace. There's got to be some rule, some law, some... I have to impose something on people. It just happens and happens and happens. And I think, ministry of condemnation. Why would you do that? Yes, Dawn, did you have your hand up? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I grew up with the phrase, you go to Jesus for your salvation and you go to Moses for your sanctification. And far too often, people are misusing the word sanctification. They think if they're cleaning up their lives that that's sanctification. But according to Paul, that's mortification. You're mortifying the deeds of the flesh. Sanctification is the work that Christ accomplished of separating you from the world for his own purposes. That is the sanctification that Christ accomplished. But because of the way that we've used that word, when you say sanctification, people think, clean up your life, do better, be more holy. But I've written an article. It's on the website. You can go look at it. It's, uh, is sanctification synergistic? Do you cooperate with God in your sanctification? And I argue that, no, your sanctification was accomplished by Christ. Now you're called to mortify the deeds of your flesh. So that's mortification. But you're right. People think that they can go back to Moses and clean up their lives. The ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. 
There are people driving down the road right now listening to me talk on an MP3 somewhere once this gets out to the world, and they're driving down the road yelling out the window, the ministry of death! (laughs) Verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Okay, so now the new covenant can accomplish what the old covenant couldn't. The old covenant, if you did it constantly, perfectly, continually, perpetually, if you did it, you could establish your own individual righteousness. Nobody save Christ ever accomplished it, so nobody ever became righteous via the old covenant. But the new covenant promises righteousness. The old covenant accomplishes completely and perfectly what the old covenant couldn't do at all. As a consequence, everybody under the old covenant, because they didn't perform the old covenant, fell under condemnation, fell under the ministry of death. But under the new covenant, by the Spirit of God, everybody who's part of that covenant is righteous. Paul writes to the Romans, you know it, you should have it memorized by now, it should be tattooed to your brain, Romans 8, 28, that whom the Lord foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then he says, all those that he has foreordained, those are the people that he called, and those are the people that he justified, and those are the people that he glorified. Same people group who were predestined and called and justified and glorified. Past tense. So God knows what he's doing. He's perfectly saving all his people via the new covenant. But now Paul is going to say, unfortunately, there are people who like the law so much and are so convinced by the law that they can't hear the grace of the new covenant. And that's as true today as it was then. There are people so committed to their rules, people so committed to the law that they can't hear it when we say, no, it's grace. We sang about it this morning. Grace, greater than my sins. Grace, overwhelming grace. And there are people who, like the minister that I talked about last week, The guy who wrote to me years ago and said, you can't just preach grace, grace, grace. You've got to put some law on people or they'll go crazy on you. But I preach grace, grace, grace with no law whatsoever because I will not impose on you the ministry of death. Make sense? So here's Paul's argument. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, he's talking about the ministry of death, the old covenant, he's talking about the law. The law had some glory. It was a fading glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case, in, or can be in that case, some of your translations will say, back then with Moses, that ministry had some glory, but it was fading Now look at the rest, has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. So there was some glory to the Old Testament. It's the righteous rule of God. Go read Romans 7. Paul says, 
The law is good. The law is righteous. The law is holy. The problem is not the law. The problem is me. I can't do the law. So as a consequence, he writes here that the law, being the word of God, was glorious in and of itself. And even Moses had a glory, but it was a fading glory. And now he says, because it had some glory, it has now ended. It has passed away. It has no glory on account of the glory of the new covenant that surpassed it. Now get this right. I'm going to say this as plain as I can say it. The law has no glory. And yet there are people saying run to the law. The law has no glory. In other words, now that Christ has come, now that Christ has died, now that Christ has paid the price, there is no benefit to running back to Moses. That accomplishes nothing. That doesn't help you. And in fact, in Galatians, Paul said that if you're trying to establish your own righteousness via the law, you are fallen from grace, so you get no grace when it comes judgment time. And he says, Christ is no help to you because you tried to follow the law. So that would be the ministry of condemnation. And when it condemns you, you can't plead Christ. And when it condemns you, you cannot expect grace in any aspect. You are fallen out from under the covering of grace. That's what the law keeping does to you. And again, I don't understand the affection for law keeping. But now Paul is going to say that. There are people who have such great affection for law keeping that they can't hear the message of grace. I've met some of those people, and I've looked them right in the eye, and I've shown them texts, and I have said, there's, there's no way that you're law-keeping, whether that's any of the laws, systematic Sabbathing, whether that's tithing, whether that any of the law that you're keeping, any of the, the Ten Commandments that you're absolutely committed to, and you think that you're establishing your own righteousness just because you've never killed anybody, and you think that God is going to be pleased with you on that basis. I had somebody say to me several months ago, they said, I'm a good person. And look, I never killed, and I don't commit adultery, and I don't steal. They were going right through the Ten Commandments. So they thought when they stood before God, God would go, yeah, you're a pretty good person. Come on in. Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. But that's not God's standard. God's standard is perfection. God's standard is righteousness. God's standard is holiness, which you cannot establish in and of yourself. You need God to impute those things to you. You need God to write those things on your heart. You need God to be gracious and merciful to your shortcomings. And so the new covenant is very, very glorious, but the old covenant has faded away until there's no glory in it. There's no Glory in it. Verse 11. For if that which fades away, the law, if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Notice the word remains. Because the law has passed away. The new covenant remains. So my job as a preacher of the Bible as a Christian preacher of the Bible, my job is to teach you new covenant salvation. 
not old covenant condemnation. Having therefore such a hope. I, let's talk about that word hope for just a quick second. El peace is the word. It has that same root as peace as faith. It doesn't mean the example that I use all the time is at Christmas when you were a kid and you were laying in bed and you hoped you got a bike. I hope I get a bike. You don't know for sure. You might, you might not, but I hope I do. That's not the word. The Greek word is confident expectation of what you know is coming. So that constant Hope that expectation that we are going to be glorified in the finished work of Christ, having therefore that hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And that's what I'm up here doing right now. I'm being as bold as I can because there are legalists out there right now hating on me (laughs) because I keep referring to the law that they love as the ministry of death. And they hate it. Every time I do that, they hate it. And they write to me in all capital letters. They hate it. But I have great boldness of speech because I have that hope of the finished work of Christ, the perfect Savior who has perfectly saved his people. That's my hope. So now look, verse 13. We have great boldness of speech and we are not as Moses. Here comes Moses again who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. The glory of the old covenant was fading away. And Moses hid his face from the people so that they wouldn't see it fading. But it was fading away. It was going to be surpassed by the new covenant. But, verse 14, and this is a sad verse, but their minds were hardened for until this very day. Now, that's the day that Paul was writing, but I think it's still true right now. Until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. In other words, what he's saying is there are people even today who don't know that underneath the veil, there's no more glory. There's no glory to the law. The veil remains unlifted so that they could discover that. But the veil is lifted in Christ. When you come to Christ, when you're part of the new covenant, when his perfect and complete salvation is applied to you the veil is lifted and you see that the law can't help you the law has no glory it can't do you any good but there are people who still have that veil there are people who still can't see that the law has no more glory we're not as Moses who used to put his veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, verse 15, whenever Moses is read... Whenever the law is read, whenever the old covenant is read, that veil remains 
over their hearts. They still think that's the way to God. They still think that's glorious. They still think those commands apply to us and that we've got to establish our own righteousness via those commands. And so the veil is in place over their hearts. But whenever a man, verse 16, but whenever a man turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. And once that veil is taken away, look, when I saw this, when I understood this, because I grew up in really legalistic church, when I understood what Paul was driving at, it was a tremendous burden off my shoulders. And now here I am talking to a room full of people, telling them the veil is lifted in Christ and there's no more glory in the law. And so far, nobody has stormed out. Why? Because in Christ, you're understanding that what I'm saying and what Paul is saying is true. That the veil is lifted so that you can see the surpassing glory of the new covenant in Christ's finished work. And you understand that you don't need anything from the law. The law can't help you, can't improve you. The law can't save you. The law can't make you more sanctified. The law can't do anything for you because Christ did it all. And if you get that, the veil is lifted. And if that veil is lifted, I think that's pretty sure evidence that Christ is for you and that the Spirit of God is in you. Because there are people still going, no, no, but that's because it's veiled. Have you ever talked to anybody and you can tell as you're talking about Christ, religious people I'm talking about, and as you're talking about the finished work of Christ, you can tell they, there's brain death happening. The EEG is dead. There's just nothing happening. They're not getting it. They don't understand. And no matter what you say, no matter what text you show them, they just can't get it. Well, that's because the veil is still over them, still over their heart. They can't get it. And so they are committed to what will ultimately be, unless Christ reveals it to them, unless he saves them from it, it's going to be the ministry of death and condemnation to them. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted away. Now, the Lord is a spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Amen. The Lord is a spirit, so you, you don't have to confine him to any one place. You can't say, well, God's over there, so he can't be over here. He's a spirit so that he can be all places and everywhere, and so that he can inhabit me as easily as he can inhabit Thaddeus, as easily as he can inhabit Steve. And the reason that the three of us have fellowship together the reason that we like each other isn't because we got together and said what do you do for a living and what's your favorite joke and where would you like to eat oh me too we like each other and get along with each other because we have the commonality of the spirit of God in us and wherever that spirit is there's liberty Jesus talking to the Pharisees said whom the son sets free is free indeed. Yeah, well, that's the kind of freedom I want. I spent a good portion of my life 
bound and locked up by people's religious attitudes. And isn't it fun to hang out with legalists? Isn't that fun? (laughs) They watch everything you say and everything you do and what you drink and how you eat. and They give you that kind of I'm better than you spiritual superiority attitude and Man, there's just no pleasing them. I'm done with them. You know why? Because Paul said that Abraham's two wives, the slave wife and the free wife, were an analogy. And that when God said, throw out the slave wife, that that was God's way of telling us to throw out the bondwoman and her children because we're not of bondage. We are children of the free. And I like that. So when the legalists come around here, I throw out the bondwoman. I will not allow them to come in here and spread legalism. Because it's the ministry of death. Are you sick of that yet? (laughs) I might get to work it in once more before the morning's over. We're nearly done. Whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, his his phraseology here is beholding as in a mirror. It's like looking into a mirror, he says, and seeing the glory of the Lord. And we all are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord came the spirit so he said it's like you're holding up a mirror and instead of seeing your reflection you're seeing the glory of God and rather than the glory of God becoming more like you you become more like the glory of God until one day you could hold up that mirror and look in it And see yourself in the glory of God. It's a great image. But we all with unveiled face. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Are being transformed into the same image. From glory to glory. Just as from the Lord came the spirit. Now I think he's referring to the fact that during Jesus three and a half year ministry. He kept promising the coming of the Holy Spirit and he had to die and resurrect and ascend on high and then the Spirit came which is why on Pentecost they could say this is the promise that Christ said was going to come. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit and so that's why Paul refers to as from the Lord came the Spirit. Now without getting into chapter 4 at all I just want you to see one more thing. Look at chapter 4 verse 3 and even If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So God has chosen people. God has elected people. God knows what he's doing. God is in the enterprise of saving people, those people whom he foreknew before the foundation of the world. And there are unsaved people who apparently nevertheless are religious and they don't hear our gospel they don't hear the good news of the finished work of Christ they're still bound by and in love with the law or at least they have a passing relationship with the law even if they don't love it 
but they believe that they are bound up by the law. And so Paul says, if our good news, very good news, if our very good news of the gospel is veiled to them, it's veiled to the people who are perishing. In other words, God's doing this on purpose. He is keeping them in that veiled condition because it's his purpose that they are not among the saved. So again, the only way you can read Pauline theology is to resort to God's sovereignty and that God is doing what God's determined to do. Yes, sir? Doesn't Jeremiah 31 point directly to the New Covenant? Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8. Yeah. Hebrews 8 is the longest quote taken from the Old Testament and moved into the New Testament. And it's a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, and he quotes it as, this is a new covenant given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it's, it's the promise of a new covenant because they're the people who were under the old covenant. Unless you have a people under an old covenant, you can't have a qualitatively new covenant. So via the new covenant of Christ's perfect work and Christ's forgiveness, that's why Paul could say now all the promises of God in the Old Testament, all those promises to Israel, all those promises that he's made to his people of a kingdom to come, all those promises are in Christ, yea, and amen. Because in Christ, God is still going to accomplish everything he ever said he was going to accomplish. How? Via the new covenant. He may have promised it under the old covenant, but the old covenant can't keep the word of God. The new covenant will keep it perfectly. Got it? Let's say it together. The ministry of death. The ministry of condemnation and death. Man, that's strong language. You know, if I had just said that, if it weren't in the Bible and I just made that up, right, right, you would, yeah, people would say, how can you talk about the holy law of God as being the ministry of condemnation? I'm so glad that Paul said that. Because I'm very bold to say it. What? Repeatedly he said it. Repeatedly he said it. He wanted to drive that home so that the people in Corinth and so that the church at large would understand what the law is. It's been outshone by the ministry of the Spirit of Christ. That's exactly right. And you know what? If you go home with nothing else today, I've talked a long time. I worked up a sweat. If you go home with nothing else, remember what Gladys just said. I've talked my face off. Gladys summed it up perfectly in 20 seconds. That the ministry of death has been completely superseded by the surpassing glory of the new covenant. And you know what? If you get that, I mean, if you really get it, if you really understand that, you're ahead of, I'm going to pick a number out of the hat here, you're ahead of 95% of the churches in the world right now who don't seem to understand what the difference is between the old and new covenant. Right? right. Am I by myself up here? No. Okay. <laughs> Technically, I am. Yes. Technically, I am by myself up here. Do you see the kind of respect I get here? Do you see that? I know. The ministry of that covenant of the letter was to the nation of Israel. Right. But God had already told Abraham that through him not only his descendants would be blessed 
but all the descendants. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's right. So that's why I said the Abrahamic covenant still has ongoing effect. But the old covenant, the Moses covenant, done away with. Did you have your hand up? Just that that basis of freedom is so important. And and you say it's not, we aren't friends or together because we like the same food or whatever, all those, you know, we like this, we like that. What are you saying? You don't like me? No. What are you getting at? That freedom allows us to have those differences, be diverse, and still be brothers and sisters. Right. And it's it's, it's the freedom to be different. Yeah. We don't all have to be the same and wear the same thing and do the same thing and think the same thing. Yeah, exactly right. People crave that. They want that acceptance. Right. But they mistakenly think I have to be the same. Right. They think they have to conform to the group. Right. And because you know how much you've been forgiven, and because you've experienced the grace of God, then you know how to forgive and how to be gracious to people. And human beings just don't act like that. So, yeah, it's tremendous freedom. Yes, George? You're not going to be able to have time to talk much about this today, but I feel like I have to give you a reaction. I think everything you said today was absolutely right. I don't have a slightest disagreement and it needed to be said but Jim when I look at the world today and the, the Christian our, our Christian brothers and sisters I don't see too much ministry of death maybe in 1925 think of tent revival right right sure today it's not too much ministry of death it's too much of what Wolfgang told me is can be called the emergent church. Well, that's you've true. Got, you've got two things. You've got the, you've got the ministry of prosperity. Yeah. Joel Osteen, you know, we can live in victory every day, by which he means we can live in prosperity and be rich every day. Really rich. I mean, money rich. Yeah. Not, not rich in spirit. So you got that. Then you also have the mainstream Protestant churches. I've talked about being a Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopalian, Lutheran, and I'm, I think a little more legalistic are Baptists and Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. But I'll put them in there too. And their problem is not being too legalistic with the possible exception of the Baptists and the Church of Christ. But those other four, their problem is not too much ministry of death, not too much legalism. It's too much... You know, feel goodism. Feel goodism. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Let's not talk about revelation. Let's not talk about things that upset people. Right. Might not, in some places, don't even get started on abortion. God loves the very good doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. No doctrine. So that, I mean, what I'm saying is your message today, absolutely true. But as I walk through the world, I don't see a lot of legalism being preached. I don't turn on the radio and have people say, you know, you're going to hell if you don't do this. It's more like the emergent church. Let me, the let me see if I can challenge you a little bit. Okay. The biggest quote-unquote Christian denomination in the world is Catholicism. Yeah. And Catholicism is all about the ministry of death. Yeah, I agree with that. Oh, he agreed with me. So, <laughs> remember I said, I, said, uh, I, I agree, I agree with you. Methodist, <laughs> yeah. a Presbyterian, yeah. Episcopalian. But as long as that's out there, the the veil continues. Yeah. So that's kind of what but I was so, thinking. Sometime when when the text takes us to this point, yeah. I'd love to hear you deliver a whole hour on the emergent church. <laughs> yeah, probably. And you know who knows and a you're lot. You're only going to get there if you, if the text. If the text takes us, takes there. us there. Yeah. yeah. 
Go ahead. Which it won't because the emergent church isn't in the text. Yeah. So, um, but, you started to but you know who knows a lot about that is Jeff. I mean, he's, he's very up on all that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did you see what I did right there, Jeff? Yeah, I saw that. Okay, good. So God takes care of the works by indwelling the Holy Spirit in us, and he's doing it on the fleshy tables of heart. Right. Internally. And we're doing what we, the best we can along the way, not realizing that he's actually shaping us to the image of, it, of his son. And he does it through the narrow way. And the narrow way in the Greek, as I understand it, is like trying to pull someone through a crevice. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy process. Right. It's not an easy process. Like a camel going through the eye of a needle. I mean, Jesus said it's a tough road. So I most willingly don't kill, not because the law said don't kill, but because my love of God internally keeps me from killing. But you, are, you weren't always that way. But I wasn't always that way. I'm not saying I used to kill randomly, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But they are fruits of the Spirit, love. The fruits of the Spirit. Things that weren't really necessarily in the law, but those yeah. things now brought out as a fruit of the Spirit. Which, what does Paul say after the list of the fruit of the Spirit? Against which there is no law. Yeah, that's that contrast again. It was very clear in Paul's mind. I'm just trying really hard to get it clear in our mind, and I wish it was really clear in the whole church's mind. Anything else? I got you riled up. Everybody's. everybody's there's no salvation in any place. There's no salvation any place but in Christ. Is that it? We're good? All right. Men's group, Tuesday night. Not the ministry of death. So be here for that. That's Tuesday night. Anything else? Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.